When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, this is the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast from Literary Hub, where we believe that every issue in your Twitter feed or on the evening news has already been tackled somewhere in literature. I'm Vivi Ganeshanathan, also known as Doogie, author of the novel Love Marriage. And I'm Whitney Terrell, author of the novel The Good Lieutenant. Today we're taping at the Miami Book Fair. Um, this event will be aired later as an episode of our show, which you can find by searching for fiction slash non slash fiction in your favorite podcast app. It will also appear on our YouTube channel and on LitHub's virtual book channel. And today we're thrilled to be talking to Ha Jin. Born in China in 1956, Ha Jin was a teenager when China entered the Cultural Revolution and he became a member of the People's Liberation Army at the age of 14. His novel, Waiting, which won the National Book Award and the Penn Faulkner, was based on his experiences during his five-year service in the Red Army. He was awarded the Penn Faulkner again in 2005 for War Trash. To date, he has published nine novels, four collections of short stories, four volumes of poetry, a book of essays, and a biography of Levi, a fellow of both the American Academy of Arts and Sciences and the American Academy of Arts and Letters, He's also received the Penn Hemingway Award and the Flannery O'Connor Award. His most recent book is A Song Everlasting. His work has been translated into more than 30 languages, and he is a professor at Boston University. Ha Jin, welcome to the Miami Book Fair and to the show. Oh, I'm very happy to be here. Uh, happy to meet you in person, Vivi, and with me. <laughs> Thanks for joining us. Um, very early on in A Song Everlasting, your protagonist, the Chinese singer, Yao Chan, am I saying that name right? Tell me how to say it. Yeah, Yao Tian. Yao Tian. Yao Tian. Yes, is on, very close, is, yes. All right, that, uh, close is as good as I probably will get. Um, <laughs> is on tour in the U.S. and leaves his own group, the People's Ensemble, to accept a separate invitation to perform at a concert in New York. He wants to put the $4,000 fee toward his daughter's uh, education. When he gets back to China, however, his superiors tell him, and I'm quoting here, the show was mainly organized by Taiwan's Pan-Green Coalition. This means... Most of the sponsors and organizers belong to the Democratic Progressive Party that advocates Taiwan's secession from China. By rule, we are not allowed to mix with them, end quote. So he's in hot water. Uh, and there's a lot of nuanced language here. For instance, since when did progressive Democrats become the most dangerous political party in, from a Chinese point of view? After all, I mean, that's a party that would be most sympathetic to socialism and communism. Wouldn't the Republicans be more upsetting? Uh, you know, Taiwan, uh, the opposite in Taiwan is uh, uh, nationalist, more conventional, uh, the, the because they were the party uh, who was defeated by the communists. And so, but the the other, the Democratic uh, Progressive Party is a younger, basically, uh, the basis, the ta- local natives, Taiwanese. So uh, as a result, the mainland China, the try not to deal with them. Uh, but on the other hand, 
and they are more they are getting more popular but at this moment they are in power in fact they often they can defeat the nationalist party and so that's the situation it's different from the states in the states in the, the two parties i think the chinese government prefer the republicans not the democrats <laughs> uh so i that that's the situation different different situation they feel that uh, uh democrats are somehow more difficult to deal with interesting so speaking <laughs> of speaking of right now i was i was reminded um as i was reading of a headline from an october 6th article which was on npr's website and the headline was Taiwan says tensions with China are at their worst in four decades. Do you think that's true? And if so, can you talk a little bit about why? Yes, it, it has been true because convention, uh, you know, for the last two or three decades, uh, China often threatened to basically always view China, uh, Taiwan as a, a state, a province, uh, not an independent country. But in recently, uh, but in recent years. And I think more Taiwan, Taiwanese people, especially the younger generations, they really want the, the independent country. Um, in fact, it is a country de facto. You know, there is an, it, it has everything, also vi- vi- vibrant uh, democracy there. And so as a result, the, the Chinese government, and especially after Xi Jinping came to power, he viewed this as his duty, his responsibility. To, be, to reunite the country. And uh, I think he is a selfish man. He really, he wants to, uh, at least to be equal to Mao. Um, but the only way to achieve that is to basically to unite the country. The reunion we, might justify his uh, uh, great status. Other than that, he didn't have a other opportunity. So that's why uh, the mainland China has become, has become very, very aggressive. Well, it's very interesting because the, you know, Chinese, for many years, the Chinese government has sort of maintained that officially that Taiwan and China are part of the same country, but in in effect, they are not. And then hasn't insisted on actually trying to like renew, reunify them. But you think that the, that he really will do this now or do something militarily to try to make this happen? I mean, how, how is it going to happen? Uh, you know, other than just, I mean, recently there were some planes that were flying in Taiwanese airspace, but that's a that's a gesture, but it's not actually going to reunify the countries. You're right. It's it's just a, a, a kind of a kind of a acting, but the the truth is, if really it depends on the power struggle within China. For instance, if Xi Jinping uh, is unlikely to continue his uh, um, in his position as the number one man in China, and he might start a war and. Be, Really aggressive with Taiwan as a way, basically, to uh, divert the public attention. Also, can that can give him kind of justification for <laughs> even put the election on hold? So, there basically, it really depends on the the inner power struggle. Also, I think American, uh, the U.S., uh, the U.S. attitude, uh, position, uh, or action or, or is very important from the U.S. The U.S. sometimes is really sometimes very aggressive, sometimes very wishy-washy. So as a result, the Taiwanese were confused. 
they were they got intimidated time and again, and also they were betrayed a few times. So they, I don't think they trusted the states completely. That's another problem. And so there are a lot of things, you know, uh, at play. For instance, when the Afghanistan the debacle happened, the Chinese government basically viewed this as a, a weak moment of the United States. Basically, they were telling other countries to see, look, what the states, uh, the U.S. has done. Uh, so you can't depend on the United States. So really, it's not just uh, Taiwan and the mainland. Really, it, it, the United States is the major force in this situation. It seems to me like so much of what we're talking about is a kind of, you know, interpreting political code. What do certain gestures and actions mean? And I think one of my favorite things about A Song Everlasting is the way that it also depicts political codes of diasporic communities and cultural engagements. And as an Asian American artist in the diaspora, like I've had to learn that some invitations, while they seem on their surface not to have agendas or political effects, in fact, they do. And um, as we've discussed, Yao Tian uh, first gets in trouble when he accepts an invitation from a group that he perceives as apolitical or at least safe, which is called the Great China Cultural Association. And I wonder if you can talk a little bit about the politics of the Taiwanese and Chinese and Hong Kong diaspora, speaking of you know, U.S. power um, in a different form, and how they relate to each other and battle over nationalism, and how you decided to portray these communities, which are also his audiences. Yes, and he, I think he was, basically he was totally lost. Uh, uh, it was very complicated. Traditionally, uh, uh, most most communities, uh, in fact, were dominated by, by uh, Taiwanese immigrants. Uh, the nationalist, nationalist party was a big part of it. But in recent years, uh, because mainland China, they, a lot of immigrants, they have, they have more money, and so the government has more influence. Gradually, they are taking over. So it, it, it is, uh, there, there were always battles between the two. And the Chinese uh, uh, embassies and consulates were often spent money too, to buy a different group. And on the other hand, I think the Taiwanese nationalists uh, or the Democrats, the social, the, the progressive uh, Democrat party, they were very sophisticated. Uh, so they were younger. So they, they, I think they, they know how to respond to the U.S. Uh, uh, public. So as a result, uh, it could be very ugly. For instance, whenever, whenever there was a, a Chinese a, a delegation of, of uh, national leaders came to the states, and there were uh, all kinds of uh, demonstrations. Uh, even uh, some people would even block their motor gates by throwing themselves <laughs> under the wheels. Uh, they knew that they had to stop. I mean, the official cars had to stop. But it happened every time when there were uh, top visitors to the states. One of the fascinating things about this book is like figuring out all these political perspectives. And I already messed up one thing earlier where I was thinking about when you talked about the progressive Democrats, I assumed you were talking about the American progressive Democrats, not the Taiwanese progressive Democrats. So my apologies there. But um, and that your, your answer explained that perfectly clearly. But like like your main character, you know, you grew up in China, ended up staying in America. 
And a lot of this book is about the challenges that uh, an artist like John uh, feels. Um, and he's, he's, he says often, I'm not a political person. I want to be a free artist. But his art keeps getting politicized, whether he likes it or not. Has that been your experience as a writer? Uh, yes, I think so. That's clear because you can't be a, 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 you know, apolitical. That's impossible, right? The very fact that you exist as an artist outside China, that is already a, a political phenomenon, right? Uh, I think what the authorities are afraid of is not your political position. It's that you can live decently as an independent person because that is really, you, in that way, you can become a model. Uh, basically, to to uh, refute the lie, the lie is uh, in fact started by Goebbels, you know, the, uh, Hitler's propaganda minister. Uh, without your country, you would be nothing. So the Chinese, the government, always for decades they repeat the same the same slogan. That's why if an artist can just exist on their own. That fact alone is a political statement. It really interested me, and this may sound, uh, you know, I've, I've read a lot about China. American journalists write a lot about it. But the simple fact, the, the original turning of the book is about, um, uh, you know, Chen taking $4,000. He takes a big risk for $4,000, right? And mm -hmm. we're always talking about Chinese. China has a great economy. It's very powerful economically. Americans think that. But... That's a lot of money to him, and that really surprised me. Uh, uh, you know, a well-known singer needing four thousand dollars that badly—is that how it works economically for someone yeah. like you? Yes, I think it is still the case okay. uh, because he has a regular salary that is very low. And that's why uh, four thousand dollars would be like a four-month salary to for, to him. But usually, they have other kind of uh, income. That's why he wants to emphasize he must be a free, uh, he must be able to perform inside China and outside China. That's what that would be essential for him. So that would be another kind of income. But that, I think somehow that now is severely restricted in recent months. Well, I mean, that's another way of the state saying, like, we're important to you, is making sure that you're not financially independent of the state, I would guess, right? Yes, yes, that's clear. In fact, in my own experience, uh, uh, it was clear that whoever, if you don't cooperate economically, we would never let you benefit. That's the state's position. That was very clear. I mean, I think one of the moments when I felt the most sympathy for him was there's a moment where he's he's singing and he's thinking of his mother, and he's interpreted as kind of, and he's singing with tremendous feeling and he's read really badly by the, the audience misinterprets his feeling. They class it as, um, you know, patriotism or kind of great feeling for motherland, whereas he's thinking of his personal life. And that's not the only moment that that happens where he's, you know, he's thinking of his daughter, he's thinking of his wife, he's thinking of his mother, he's thinking of his sister. And, um, he takes an action and it's read within the lens of politics. Yes. <laughs> yes, it's personal. Very, very often, in fact, we get into political situation for personal reasons. And that, that's very clear. And nobody could see his, him as a person, the personal grief. But it was interpreted as a public, uh, uh, collective uh, manifestation of 
collective emotion. And as he becomes more and more savvy as a performer, he starts to make different choices. And I wonder, you know, in his case, or in your case, how much of the politicization of his actions has to do with emigrating from China specifically? Because in the US, you know, he's invited to give a concert for a Falun Gong connected organization. He kind of has to do some detective work there to figure out what's going on. In another situation, he has a personal point he wants to make. So he chooses to align himself with a different group um, to make a point about what's going on in China. Uh, He performs at events that commemorate the Tiananmen Square massacre. And the whole time, the Chinese government is putting different kinds of pressure on him. Uh, And I wonder if you would read a section about that pressure for us. Uh, Okay, sure. And in fact, they really try hard because he is an artist that he doesn't have a business really uh, it's not not like other if you're a businessman we can give you a great deal and you pay less for for a lot a lot of bonds or, or property but he is a, a just an independent artist so they try to buy him basically and this so when a, a businessman approached him and they made appointment and for a uh, at the tea house, and this is uh, on Northern Boulevard in Flushing. So he went to the tea house to meet the man, and Gary Hong. Okay. Harry Hong took off his glasses, revealing his hooded eyes. He said he'd been a long time fan of Tian's and owned all his emblems. He had an odd accent Tian couldn't place. Probably he was a Korean who had lived in China. There were many Koreans in Flushing who came from Yanbian, the Korean autonomous region in Jilin province. His rugged face indicated that he was he must be a northerner, probably a businessman, as his expensive suit showed. I'm here now, Mr. Hong Tian said. I hope we have something interesting to discuss. I have a business proposal for you, Mr. Hong said, leaning his lumpy face in. Actually, the proposal is not for me. I'm representing a client. Who's your client? I can't name him or them, but I can put their terms on the table for you to, to consider. My clients would like to offer you a sum of money in exchange for your cooperation. What do you mean by cooperation? Stop performing outside China altogether. He grinned, revealing a gold crown in the back of his mouth. So your clients want to buy my voice, my silence? You can put it that way if you wish. Well, I've never heard such a proposal before. Tell me, how much is my silence worth? They can offer you $4 million, $4 million yuan or dollars, certainly US dollars. Tian shook his head, too dazed, too dazzled to speak. Think about this, Mr. Yao. Harry Hong went on. This is an extraordinary offer, isn't it? I hope it's acceptable to you. Finally, Tian got his whisked back and said, let me sleep on it, all right? I can't decide now. Of course, take your time, but let me make it clear that once you accept the offer, 
you will have to abide by our agreement. If you break your word, our client, your client, my clients will ruin you and your family. They have infinite ways to do that. He took a pen after his, after the inside pocket of his jacket, and scribbled a phone phone number on the back of his business card. His index figure. His index figure had no nail. Its tape, uh, its tape merely a tapered stump. I understand, Tian said. I'll let you know my decision soon. Mister Hong knocked back the remaining espresso and then handed him the card. Here's my mobile number, and you can call me anytime. After exchanging a few pleasant pleasantries, Tian decided to leave. Mr. Hong assured him that if he took the offer, the money could be delivered in any way he preferred. Tian told him he appreciated that and would figure out an appropriate way. Then they stood up and said goodbye. Mr. Hong headed to the men's room. His olive green trench coat still draped over his chair, while Tian turned. From the door, four million dollars would be enough for him and his family to live on comfortably for the rest of their lives. He'd better talk with Suna, and they ought to consider it carefully. He emailed her, so that he could make everything clear to her. He wrote, "They would like to buy my voice, my total silence, for four million U.S. dollars. We must discuss this." Before I answer, Mr. Hong, I'll call tonight. He thought Shuna would、uh, reject the offer immediately, but on the phone she sounded excited. She asked how they'd pay him, and they could de- they could deposit the money into our joint account in Beijing. He told her, the delivery can be arranged according to our preference. Mr. Hong promised me. Gosh, I never thought they would spend so extravagantly. It's not their money to begin with. They wouldn't give a damn about whether I'm worth that much. I've heard that the government is flush with so much cash in recent years that they worry about how to spend it. They even put a huge TV screen in Times Square to show what's going on in Beijing. Someone in power must be uncomfortable about my presence among the dissidents in America, and wants to rein me in. My、uh, my performances here might undermine their grand propaganda plan. What do you think I should do? Logically speaking, if you love thinking and our family above everything else. You should consider the offer seriously. With four million dollars, our family will be all set. We'll have funds we need for Tingting's education abroad. We can also consider investment immigration to the U.S. or to Canada. I've heard that if you plunk down half a million dollars, you can get a green card within three months. In short, this is a great opportunity. 
He was taken aback by her enthusiasm. He had been tempted by the offer, but was counting on her to support, to resist the temptation. Yet what she said perplexed and unnerved him. He did love his wife and daughter, and he knew that he had brought them a great deal of stress lately. But this offer was a different matter, and he felt it shouldn't be confused with his devotion to his family. Tintin and Shuna had their lives, and he had his own. How could he sell himself all at once for their comfort and security? He grew quiet on the phone, unable to express these thoughts that might upset his wife. Well, she continued, it will be your call, Tian. No one but yourself should decide what to do. What if I were to turn down the offer, he asked. It will be I will understand and won't blame you. Let me say this, if you love your daughter unconditionally, you should seriously consider the offer. Of course, you have your own ego, your own demons that you have to wrestle with your, on your own, that you have to wrestle with on your own. Okay, let me stop here. Sorry, it's a long, uh, uh, long scene. Uh, yeah, uh, I but think this... Sorry, go ahead. Go ahead, please, maybe. Oh, I just was going to say, when I first read it, I just found it very stressful to read. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, because he, he is a national figure. So it, it, it's a lot of money for any artist. You know? and, but he, but he couldn't, couldn't sell his voice that way. And he would be nobody. And, but it's, on one hand, Change Gummed over the years really uh, started this for a long time. Not everybody was worth millions, but usually they would give a person like tens of tens of thousands of grants or even half a million. Uh, basically, a, a, want the person to start a business or something on their own, and then eventually the government would use them, make good use of them. So in his case, big, big, we know that he is such a big star, and even the number one, the president Jiang Zemin, had nighttime snack with him. So if one of the top leaders expressed, you know, interest or dissatisfaction about his being abroad and performing outside China, and all the subordinates and the underlings would figure out a way how to bring him back. So if that happened, money is not issue anymore. Because for a lower ranking official, this would be a way to show you know, their ability to their superiors. Also, the money is really perfectly legitimate within the scheme of the grand propaganda plan. So it's different uh, a situation. He's exceptional in that sense. I know that people will be shocked, but my advances for my books are not $4 million. <laughs> so, I was trying to think like, what would happen if somebody offered me $4 million to not ever write a book again? Uh, <laughs> yes, but I think most of the writers would, wouldn't take that kind of way because you cut a deal with the devil, right? You can't do that. Yeah. 
not only that, you know, the great poet uh, Auden, W.H. Auden, I think the Nobel Prize Committee, they asked him to sign a kind of agreement about something something he should not say. Uh, he refused. Later, he regretted, saying he he really he needed the money. <laughs> but that was nothing like that. You stop writing poetry. <laughs> So in other words, in, in terms of psychology, it is perfectly legitimate for artists to refuse. Yeah, I think I just, I found it so realistic, their conversation, or I don't know, that's how I would imagine, because it is such a lot of money and it does, it clearly, it's outlined the way that it would make a difference to them and the way that they kind of wobble in that moment. And that's just one kind of pressure that they face. He also begins after a while to wonder who around him might be watching him and from what from what position, which also seems to to put some psychological weight on him. Yes, and people around him, you know, you don't know who is employed by the, the Chinese government. And that happened. In fact, that happened. And, you know, and that's, I think it's also true within the immigrant community. You don't know who are backed by which part, which faction within the government. I mean, but Taiwan or mainland or inside the Communist Party, there are different factions. They would have their own representatives in different groups. And then, of course, this creates an atmosphere where people in the same communities are reporting on each other, which. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Just seems to really, um, yeah, complicate. I think people assume that diasporic communities are um, monoliths that get along. And to see the reality of it portrayed um, was really. Yeah, that's very different. You know, it, in fact, in the states we have like the uh, Cuban, Cuban community. We can see that many of them they are very, very aggressive. They really they are opposed. They are opposed uh, um, to communism. But in the Chinese situation, it's quite different because the U.S. economy and Chinese economy they overlap, entangled. So as a result, even a lot of, lot of U.S. officials, in fact, have, bought, have been bought off by the Chinese government. You can't tell who is helping the Chinese government. Yeah, I think as I was reading, sort of, I was, I would every once in a while lift my head up and, and tell my um, partner what my guesses were, <laughs> who was who. Was who. Um, and I think another really fascinating thing um, about the book, I'm a, I'm a musician, perhaps not a very good one, but a lifelong one. And I so loved reading the descriptions of the music and also tracing the politics of the music in this book. And along those lines, and sort of also in the vein of what we've just been talking about, you know, what influence do Chinese officials have? There's an amazing reference to at least one real life incident in the novel. Um, the pianist Lang Lang plays a song containing anti-American sentiment. And the song is called In Praise of Our Motherland. And this happens at the White House in 2011. And it did happen at the White House in 2011 when Hu Jintao, who was um, then China's president, visited. And, and at the time, there were rumors, you know, I was reading the news coverage about this, there were rumors that Chinese officials had had a hand in picking the music. And also many people who said, Lang Lang didn't know. Um, it's just a song. And, and the song comes from a movie in which Chinese soldiers fight U.S. soldiers during the Korean War, hence the anti-U.S. sentiment. And I wonder if you would read once more for us, read your version of this event and tell us about writing this song into the book. Uh, in fact, I'm sure, I'm positive that uh, Lang Lang knew, he knew, and because there was a, such a popular movie. 
Uh, we all saw it for over the years. There were not many movies available for the general audience, and he it would be impossible for him not to uh, have seen this movie. Okay, I I want to read a a, 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 par a few paragraphs about the uh, response and, and the protagonist Yao Tian. He had a good friend who was a pipa player, and. Tan Mei, originally she was invited. This is fiction, okay? She wasn't invited. She was such a, a great performer, a musician. She was invited then, but she, she wouldn't do it. So that's why she was, this was revealed to the public. So a lot of other people were angry at her. And Tian was trying to help his friend, okay? Tian had read about the Tan Mei's trouble in newspapers and online. What had happened with the White House performance was that a Chinese official had approached Tan Mei before President Hu's visit and invited her to perform at the state dinner, sharing the program with an American jazz, jazz band. Without thinking twice, Tan Mei, feeling honored, accepted the invitation but when she saw the list of pieces, she was appalled to find she was to play in praise of our motherland. The song had originally appeared in a 1950s movie about the Battle of Triangle Hill in the Korean War. Its lyrics were embedded with anti-American sentiment. If friends arrive, we have good wine. If wolves come, we have hunting guns. Tan Mei asked if he, she could play another song in its place, but the Chinese official responded rudely, telling her that she was not in a position to choose. As a protest, she canceled her appearance. They then invited the pianist Lang Lang to play the song in the White House instead and he was delighted to oblige. The Americans at the banquet were completely unaware of the song's connotations. They applauded Long Long's virtuoso performance. President Hu was so pleased by the resounding success that he even hugged the pianist. Later, a newspaper in Taipei reported China's uh, imported China's hoodwinking of the Americans with the headline, A Brief Comes Take Over of the White House. So that's a really great passage. And one of the things that I thought a lot about while I was reading this book is the ways that Americans tend to perceive China as extremely powerful in certain ways. Um, and partly of that power in Americans' minds, I'm saying, comes from the fact that it has an authoritarian uh, government, which doesn't have to argue over things. It can do whatever it wants, right? It doesn't have to debate in Congress like we are now over the infrastructure bills. Um, but the novel, your novel, depicts Chinese officials as very anxious about the country's image. And recently we've been hearing reports in the news about the collapse of Evergrande, which is a huge Chinese real estate firm, mm -hmm. and that maybe Chinese real estate prices aren't really accurate or, or could collapse like they collapsed here in America in 2008. Um, stories you know, and then earlier in your book, there's a line a character says of China, this country, because I'm quoting now from the book, this country, it was whispered, was like a sinking ship. So which is it? 
You know, it, it, that saying has been around for decades. That's why all the top top officials' children they have left China, so they made money kind of a, in a very shady, illegal way, um, but they hired their their wealth outside China. They all believe that China, the country, as a country, the country will will sink quite soon. Uh, but on the other hand, somehow miraculously, there are always way there there were always a way to sustain the country from collapsing. It is a powerful country mainly because I think it doesn't have the, the turnover like you know the, the election every four year we have a presidential election. Yeah so we don't have that kind of continuity. One person once in power can stay there for a long time. So as a result the person can build his own uh, subordinates so consolidate his power. So there's a very strong sense of continuity. Uh, so that gave us the feeling that uh, uh, the government how somehow is a state it's stable. And um, but the, that's in fact the communists they, they are aware of that. They said that's our the superiority of our system in comparison to the US. So they really a lot of policies were made depend on that kind of so-called superiority. Whereas in the States, we don't know, uh, from the for, uh, foreign countries' point of view, we don't know what might happen in four years. Even if Biden is very supportive, but what if he's not in power anymore? So that well, we're, was... all, we're all worried about that. <laughs> <laughs> See, that's the problem. So that's why the, the, they use this, basically, basically the, uh, the comments, they really understand the psychology of different, you know, the other countries. So they use this as kind of threat. You know, we are here always. Yeah. So you have to deal with us. It is really is kind of very disturbing, very disheartening. Even from 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 Biden and from even Trump, their point of view, their children they have business in China. They would think, if, when I'm gone, uh, my kids still have business there. So really, that makes China is somehow. A very strong, very stable in appearance, but in reality, it is not really. There were more than more than twenty thousand foreign businesses have left uh, last year, uh, this year, last year, and this year, and a lot of people, millions, tens of millions of people, now out to work. So the country is in very terrible shape, very terrible shape. Do you think people are leaving at this rate because of the crackdown in Hong Kong or because the economy's not as good or because the government's policies have been a little bit more strict recently, just as you were talking about earlier in the interview? Or is there a particular reason? There are various reasons. Hong Kong was a big factor because it showed that the so-called two, one country, two, two systems, that kind of <laughs> compromise would not work. That means the communists will basically will rule uh, every part, uh, everywhere. And also, I think a lot of the top officials, they almost without exception, they all have bank accounts in Switzerland and the other countries. So they are know they know that the money were made illegally. So once they they lose power and they have they can't they have to protect themselves for the children as well. 
So and only people, only people in the in the at the bottom of society, they they were somehow they really they buy the propaganda, and their minds have been shaped by propaganda. They believe in the country, partly also because religion has been suppressed. As a result, they divide the country. The irony is in in China. The word for country and the the country and the state are the same word, 国家 So they don't make the distinction. The state is the country. That who rules the state, the Communist Party. So the party is the country. That is such a great answer. Thank you for that. <laughs> we have one more question that we'd like to ask, and we're going to and sign off with you. But um, we're going to want to go back to Jian, your main character. You've been talking about China's preoccupation in the government with stability and and. Lastingness, you know, but one of his,、uh, your character's preoccupations is artistic durability, you know, and even the title is the song "Everlasting," right?、Uh, mm-hmm. Over time.、Yeah. Uh, so, how is the desire to make art that lasts connected to the desire to make a political or moral impact, or are those things at odds? That means we have to really write a good book, a, a good piece of literature that can last. Uh, really, otherwise, how can we justify that when we write about the people's suffering, misery, and if we don't produce genuine art, then we just utilize their other suffering, right? And a, a good example would be、uh, John Steinbeck's uh, 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 "The Grapes of Wrath," right? There were books uh, <laughs> uh, written about the, the dust bowl migration and、uh, the d- depression. And also, there were lot and lot of、uh, second-hand knowledge. He did not experience that, but he wrote a great book. So nowadays, when we want to re-experience that uh, uh, migration, we go to that novel. So, what is the justification? It is his art that make that experience live and last. So, I think that's the、uh, reason. You have to produce good work that can justify, that must last. In other words, well, we really appreciate you joining us today, and listeners and viewers,、um, don't miss Hajin's deeply moving new novel, A Song Everlasting, which is out now. And don't forget, you can listen to this discussion as an episode of the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast. Thank you, thank you, Vivi. Thank you, Whitney. Very happy to meet you. <laughs> Yeah, it's a real treat after enjoying the book so much, and thank you so much also to the Miami Book Fair for inviting us to be part of this conversation. That's it for this episode of the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast from Literary Hub. To subscribe to Fiction Nonfiction, please type "fiction slash non slash fiction" into your favorite podcast app. We'd love to hear your ideas and feedback. You can reach us at fictionnonfictionpodcast at gmail dot com. On Twitter at FNF Talk, on Facebook at FNF Pod, and on Instagram at Fiction dot Non dot Fiction dot Podcast. In each of these places, you'll find links to our Lit Hub Radio show notes, including some of the readings we mentioned in this episode. You can also find video versions of our episodes on Lit Hub's virtual book channel and in our YouTube channel. Our website, with our full video and audio archive and episodes grouped by theme for educators, is at fnfpodcast.net. The show is produced by Ann Knigendorf, and we'd also like to thank our student intern producer Hayden Baker. Until next time, happy reading and writing from fiction nonfiction.